Why is this film important? Well, I think it's important for several reasons. Some of them are really timely. There's a stolen election that, that uh, really helps to sour workers in Chicago on the ability to bring change through the electoral system. You know, if you talk to most people today, they think, oh, eight hours, 40 hour weeks are, are in the constitution or something. And they don't realize that people literally fought and died to win the eight hour day. One of the things a viewer can take from this film is how many things have changed since then and, and how many have not and how many things are, are still relevant in today's, uh, today's world, you know. Those were the voices of labor historians Joe McCartan and Steve Breyer and film director Adrian Pravitsa on a special May Day discussion of Adrian's new film, Haymarket, The Bomb, The Anarchist, The Labor Struggle. It's a fascinating discussion in which the events of 1886 in Chicago are connected not only to the broader world at the time, but to our own lives and struggles today, 135 years later. Joe McCartan is an expert on U.S. labor, social, and political history, whose books include Labor's Great War, The Struggle for Industrial Democracy, and The Origins of Modern American Labor Relations. Stephen Breyer is a historian who's published widely on issues ranging from U.S. social and labor history to the uses of digital technologies and tools to improve academic teaching, learning, and research. Adrian Pravica is an award-winning filmmaker, director, producer, and cinematographer whose other films are A Night on Milwaukee Ave and The Fourth Partition. The discussion was conducted online with audience participation as part of this year's DC Labor Film Fest and co-sponsored by the Global Labor Film Festival Network and the Labor Goes to the Movies podcast. These open discussions will continue during the month of May as part of the D.C. Labor Film Fest. Thursdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. There's a link to RSVP in the show notes. Here's the show. All right, it's 8 o'clock, folks. We are going to get started. We got about four hours of content talking about Haymarket to squeeze into one hour. Adrian Pravica, our director, is this is his seventh discussion on his film today and he's got two more to go and so first let me just start out i am chris garlic with the dc labor film festival and i'm really happy to be doing this discussion and the screening of the film as part of the global labor film fest network screening we had i think eight uh, different festivals involved including the granddaddy of them all the rochester labor film series which is run by my dad john garlock a labor historian so thanks for that and it's just very pleased for everybody to show up and have a discussion about a terrific film i want to do a, just a point of privilege here this is this is the dc labor film fest sort of 20th year with an asterisk last year technically was our 20th year and we did show a lot of free films, Zooming and streaming, but we're back at the American Film Institute, so we're considering this our official one. And with us uh, all along has been our main sponsor, American Income Life, and George Farenthold, who also, for his sin, serves on the Metro Council's executive board, is with us. And George normally shows up at every screening at, at, at AFI and helps just to do whatever it is that I tell him to do. God bless him. So... George, you should say a word or two before we jump into the discussion. It's just a privilege. I'm thrilled that we've got uh, this film to, to see over the next few hours and days. And it is a privilege. 20 years, uh, it's by like a flash. 
<laughs> so we're working on the next 20 now. All right, so this, I'm assuming that everybody either has seen the film or will see it. You've got until tomorrow where it's still going to be available free. So if you haven't yet seen it or you want to see it again or you think other people should see it, you have another, I think, 24 hours to do that. So we're going to really focus on discussing the issues that are raised in the film and whatever else you want to talk about. And we put together the filmmaker, Adrian Pravica, who, hi, Adrian, good to have you here. And I look, hi, you look, um... Hello, you everyone. Like, you look like you're pretty much hanging in there. For the seventh one, I'm impressed. I, I think I'd be a basket case at this point. Uh, yeah, it's been great. Uh, a learning experience doing virtual screenings. Normally, I would be in person, which I think at the same time, it's the same concept where you still have to kind of face your audience and you know bring up some of those points, which is great. I'd just like to take one second to really thank everybody here for taking the time out of your day to, to watch the film. I think... It's, it's great that uh, you're able to sit down and view it and hopefully you uh, enjoyed the film and I'm looking forward to the discussion, but I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to view it, really. Great, thanks Adrian. And then our two panelists today are two labor historians who have lots of different hats that they wear. Joe McCartan is a longtime you know, friend of mine, friend of my dad's, go way, way back. And it's been just a real pleasure to spend time with him over the years here in Washington, D.C. He's just come off, I think, a three-day conference. Is that right, Joe? Actually, it started Wednesday. Oh, my God. It was four days, but, but it's a pleasure to be here tonight. And then from just up the way a bit up in New York, in the Hudson Valley, I understand, Steve Breyer, also labor historian with CUNY. Welcome, Steve. Happy to be here. Nice to be on this panel and look forward to the conversation. So what I'm going to do is just ask our panelists to respond to a general question. I have a whole list of notes, but I'm actually just going to go ahead and open it up to all of you. This is going to be a pretty free-flowing conversation. I think there's lots of really uh, important stuff. Frankly, I, a lot of my questions had to do with connecting this film and these issues to today. So uh, the, the first question I wanted to, to start out with, and I'll go first to Adrian, and then I'd like to have Stephen and Joe respond, is why a film about something, my math tells me it's 125 years ago, that certainly we in the labor movement know about, but not a lot of other folks know about. Why a film about that? Why is that important in 2021? So Adrian, to you first. Yeah, your math is pretty correct. It's 135 years, I think. Why is it important in 2021? I think one of the things a viewer can take from this film is how many things have changed since then and, and how many have not and how many things are still relevant in today's, uh, today's world, you know? Okay, Steve? Well, it seems to me that the film and the event's relevance has to do with the struggles we're facing now, uh, as Elaine Bernard says in the film, you know, we're, we're slipping away from the idea of the eight hour day and what the film speaks to and what the event really, what it started with was the struggle for the eight hour day. You know, if you talk to most people today, they think, oh, eight hours, 40 hour weeks are, are in the constitution or something. And they don't realize that people literally fought and died to win the eight hour day and the weekend, as we like to say. And so this is the origin of that. And it feels to me like the other thing that's important to say about it, which I think is, is central to understanding what happens in Chicago in May of 1886, how centrally involved immigrant labor is in the struggle for 
better life, better working conditions, uh, a better society, fighting through the workout for the eight hour day, but also putting forward radical ideas that challenge industrial capitalism, which was not in its infancy any longer, but certainly was not the power that it becomes in the 20th century. And yet the power of the of, of industrial capitalists in this period was, was largely unchallenged until radical workers and the labor movement, the nascent labor movement, challenged it. So I can give an example. 11 years ago, I was asked by the Central Labor Council in New York City to develop a flyer for the first international workers celebration of Labor Day, of, of May Day rather, in um, New York City. And I developed a flyer that ended up being translated into three languages. It was in English, of course, but also in Spanish and Cantonese, in part to represent the importance of the May Day struggle for um, contemporary labor and the contemporary labor movement. So I feel like the connection between past and present could not be better illustrated than is illustrated by what by the struggle for the eight hour day and the Haymarket events and the Haymarket martyrs. And I guess the final point I would make, it's not accidental that all over the world, International Labor Day is celebrated on May 1st. This is exactly connected to the martyrs you know, of Haymarket and why the world understood why this was a momentous event. And ironically, until quite recently, we didn't celebrate May Day in this country, except the left did. But the official Labor Day was the first Monday in September. And that was Grover Cleveland, the Democratic Party president in the late 19th century, trying to counter exactly this kind of effort to, to link May Day to International Workers' Day. So I, I feel like it couldn't be more relevant than it is right now. And just, I, I always, I can't resist. May 1st, of course, officially is Law Enforcement Day here in the U.S., which uh, <laughs> is, not, is neither ironic nor a coincidence, but we'll move on from that. All right, Joe McCartan, to you. Sure. First, thank you, Adrian, for making this film. I think as Steve was saying, it, it is very timely for this moment. And thank you for bringing this memory uh, up for us uh, at this critical time in our history. It seems like this is really an, a historical inflection point. And so why is this film important? There's a stolen election that, that uh, really helps to sour workers in Chicago on the ability to bring change through the electoral system, the election of Frank Stauber. There is a, a fairly liberal mayor in Chicago at this time, but he seems to have no control over his police force, led by John Bonfield. And though the mayor at one point appears at the rally and says, this looks fine to me, and, and then moves on and tells the police not to worry about it, the police clearly had their own mind about how they wanted to handle this. Uh, and that, I think, should alert us to some things we saw not that long ago in our own streets. I think, for example, about New York City, where Mayor Bill de Blasio was, you know, trying to tell the police to ease off on some of the Black Lives Matter protests, and they were really pursuing them as they wanted to. And so there are some really timely reminders of things that will jump out at us in our own time as you watch this film. But it's important, I think, too, because this is a moment this film recounts 
that is seminal for all that follows later. As Steve has remarked on, May Day comes out of this moment, right? And it's it's out of this moment and out of the Haymarket Martyr that, that leads the World Socialist Movement to declare May Day. May 1st. And that doesn't happen in the U.S., as Steve was pointing out. So we begin to see a bifurcation emerge between the U.S. movement, in a way, and some of the movements elsewhere in the world. Marx and Engels thought the U.S. movement was the most advanced in some ways in the 1860s and early 70s. The U.S. movement would follow, it would turn out a different direction after 1886, in part because of what happened in Haymarket and what followed it. The AFL did not exist at the time the bomb was thrown in Haymarket Square. What did exist was its predecessor, the Federation of Trades and Labor Unions, and Samuel Gompers had, had already led that federation. The, the federation had endorsed May 1 as a day for eight-hour strikes around the country, and it was really, you could say, a class movement that was taking place in, in many cities simultaneously to Chicago. But in the aftermath of Haymarket and the Red Scare, really, that followed uh, the Haymarket affair, the American labor movement really was taken aback. The Knights of Labor, and I, I feel almost embarrassed to talk about the Knights here with John here and with Peter here, who knows so much about and have written so much about its history. They should come in and say more about it. But that movement, the Knights of Labor with its vision was really reaching its full flower at the moment of Haymarket. Hay and, and the Knights is really severely hurt by the Haymarket affair. Uh, and when the AFL forms, within the shadow of Haymarket by the end of 1886 in November. It forms in this moment of real conservatism and fear. And I think it puts a big stamp on the movement that does emerge. And as Steve said, immigrants were really central to, to the struggle in Chicago and so many other places, and they would remain central, but there would always be this fear of in the American labor movement as an institution of being identified with foreign-born radicals. And that fear would not soon go away. I think those things shaped a lot of the history that followed and really helped shape the history that led us to, to this particular moment. Thanks, Joe. And that's a good step. I actually do want to bring uh, both Peter and John in for a sec before we open it up to more general questions. But yeah, Peter uh, Ratcliffe, labor historian, also with the Eastside Freedom Library. I'd love to get uh, your reactions, thoughts, and then John, get some from you as well. Go ahead, Peter. Well, um, I, I would be careful about seeing the Haymarket consequences as dropping a very sharp door on labor activism. You know, 1892 sees the New Orleans general strike and the Homestead Steel strike. It certainly had an impact on what Joe is saying, this shift from the Knights of Labor more in a direction of narrower craft-focused unions. And in some ways, I've been reminded many times of David Montgomery saying, when you think about the labor movement in the late 19th century, you have to think about five kinds of organizations. So there were trade unions, there were reform organizations, there were producer co-ops, there were independent political parties, there were Knights of Labor local assemblies. And at the time that David said that, I was sitting in a classroom 
in, in Pittsburgh in the mid-1970s, then his punchline was, and if you talked about the labor movement today in the 1970s, you would only have one kind of organization. And I think when we think about this connection between the past and the present, we're living in a period now where there are again, multiple kinds of organizations that constitute, if we, if we can stretch our definitions and our language that constitute the labor movement. And so there are worker centers. We have two very vibrant worker centers here in Minnesota. Setul, predominantly among Latino workers. Awud, predominantly among East African workers. There is the Movement 415 Now, which I think of in many ways as today's iteration of the eight-hour movement. And if we look at the class composition, we might want to argue that Black Lives Matter is part of the labor movement. And today, there was a march in Minneapolis celebrating May Day, sponsored by half a dozen unions, communication workers, teachers union, AFSCME, SEIU, and the march ended at George Floyd Square. So these kids, it's, I find looking back at Haymarket makes me want to think about the rich range of organizations that were part of the labor movement then and how the eight-hour vision was one not just for dues-paying union members, but a vision for all working people. And it makes me want to look for where do I see that today? So that's my five cents. And thank you for giving me the floor, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. So next up, uh, let's go to uh, John, obviously my dad. He's also uh, runs the Rochester Labor Film Series, which is the granddaddy of the Labor Film Series, but also, as Joe referred to, did some of the seminal work on the Knights of Labor. But John, wearing whatever hat or hats you want, I'd love to get some comments from you. I don't really have a lot to add to uh, what's been said by the eminent historians on your panel. I just want to point out to people that uh, Albert Parsons, who makes an appearance in the film, was a member of the Knights of Labor. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, John. All right, I, and I'm going to wind up this section with with my, my good friend Tom Zaniello, who's written, who literally has written not just the book or many books on labor films. Tom is one of the folks, that, among other things, helps me with finding and, and screening films for the DC Labor Film Fest, which just started this week. I'll drop the link in there. It's available no matter where you are, with the possible exception of Canada, because I think uh, these may be geo-blocked. So sorry, Canadian friends. But in the, in the continental US, you can watch these anywhere in the country, which is pretty cool. So, Brothers and Yellow, your thoughts or reactions? My primary one is that it's a very important documentary, and any documentary that reviews the Haymarket Massacre and the struggle for the eight-hour day is important. And I think, for me personally, I had the illusion that I knew a fair amount about Haymarket, but I found that I was getting a lot of new information and new context. I had forgotten about, that's not the right word, I had neglected to, to put Lucy Parsons where she belonged, right up there with, with the other great labor leaders, and the film helps restore her. And the importance of a, an African-American leader, a woman, in this context is just a really important reminder. 
the immigrant aspect is fairly obvious, but but Lucy Parsons was a real, real important facet of the film. Any film that begins with this quotation, time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you are throttling today has got my vote. I focus especially on the verb throttling because it seems to me that's a word to wrap yourself around. Mm -hmm. I did not know that these guys were tortured for seven minutes after the hanging. That was really an essential piece of information. Maybe most people knew that, but I, I never knew that they did not die the way hanged people often die immediately. They had to suffer for seven more, seven more minutes. So that, again, is another very important thing. I also think that can we forget how important the fight for eight, the eight-hour um, workday? I, I don't know. I don't think we can forget it, but it, this film will make sure that we don't forget it. And that's another uh, very important plus. Thank you, Tom. And it, I knew about how long it took, but I think that post George Floyd and everything else that we've seen over the last year, it had special and even more resonance this year, to be honest. I do want to go back because you, you talked about the beginning of the film. And I just want to, I just want to say to Adrian, it's a gorgeous film. I really, there's, there's been attempts to make different kinds of historical things and they're usually very well-intentioned, but honestly, often kind of boring because people really get bogged down in the history and you found a way to, to make it beautiful. And I don't mean that in an artsy way because it's a very powerful film, but I, I, I saw something that I think a lot of people probably missed. I had to back it up and freeze frame it, but in the little tiny type at the end of your movie, you have this very strange disclaimer, which I have a feeling your lawyers made you put in there but it, it includes this line, viewers be advised, this is just a movie. <laughs> and I, and maybe it's just me, but I thought that the fact that you said that, because this is obviously, I don't want to say it's a piece of agitprop, but this is not just a movie. I just want you to talk about that for a sec. Yeah, that's something that I put in there because, well, for a couple of reasons. The first thing is that, well, I wouldn't want anybody to go throw a bomb somewhere and take some of this into live action. I think I wanted to say also with that phrase, it's just a movie to counteract some of the certain things. My hope for this entire film was not to tell everybody the entire story of Haymarket. It wasn't to tell everybody the history of the labor movement. And it was really to start a conversation because you can't tell this story in a single movie. This movie started out as a three hour film, originally an idea for three episodes that was kind of boiled down to 83 minutes. And as I kind of took out pieces here and there, I tried to more, I guess, focus on the fact of having someone watch it and be like, you know, maybe I should read a little bit more about this because I don't think I could ever really tell the entire story. And that's what everybody else is for. You know, they have all these books and there's the big three uh, Bibles, I call them, of Haymarket. And they're about 400 pages each. And they have so many wonderful, so much information. And then you get into the speeches from these people. And that's something I felt that some of the books glossed over a little bit. Because these speeches are really, really powerful. I didn't really feel I knew the whole story of Haymarket until I started reading their actual writings and their actual speeches, which were very strong. So when I say it's just a movie, what I'm saying is this is what I'm presenting as a collection of interviews with some people who know this topic. And I'm supporting that by researching a lot of the material that um, I found in five years of my work on this. Um, so, you know, take it, take it as you may, but my concept wasn't to really push us, push an angle or a side. 
more as just to start a conversation between people about this topic because that story is just so heroic and tragic. It, it really is a classic story of, of David versus Goliath. And how can you get more dramatic than someone dying bravely for the rights of other people? So I think the story was so powerful that to me, that was the message. And I didn't want to get hung up too much on a lot of the details that we could probably dwell on for days. The fact that uh, this is your seventh conversation about this film just today, I think, I think you've succeeded, brother. I want to go back and ask Joe McCartan a question. Joe is part of a labor history a podcast called Labor History Today that we've been doing for a few years. And when Joe and I talked about it a few years ago, what we both agreed really strongly on was that we really didn't want to do a labor history podcast that was just about the past. It was really important to us that we always connect the past to what's going on now. And it's the game that we would play when Joe's on the show. We'll take some random obscure labor history thing and I'll challenge him to, you know, to connect it to the present. He's never failed yet. I keep trying to stump him. But Joe, I thought of you a number of times during this film with that question of mind, connecting things. And, and one of the things I just wanted to throw out and then have you react at the end of the film when they're talking about uh, some of the, the there's sort of some legislative the responses after Haymarket, right? And one of the things I was thinking was, of the things that happened last year with the election and so forth, and that now you have these legislatures all over the country that are, and that are passing laws. I think in Florida now, if you have three or more people, it's a riot or something. I've lost track. And that that connected in my mind. So I'm just wondering if you, and I'll open that up to, to, to Steve uh, as well, but go ahead, Joe. Uh, that connection is a really important one to make. Haymarket was used not just in Chicago to bring about repression, but around the country. And I think Steve has um, actually done more about this in his own work than me. But I think as we saw with Black Lives Matter last year, uh, those protests have elicited a backlash. And the response to Black Lives Matter, it seems to me, is, is pretty similar when you compare it to the way people responded to Haymarket. And in Haymarket, when you consider the level of backlash that there was. People who don't know much about it might think there must have been dozens and dozens of police killed to elicit this kind of backlash, but there were more protesters killed than police. And we don't know where that bomb came from. And yet the event itself became a trigger for a, a big backlash. Some of it was through law and some of it was extra legal. And again, I think there, this is similar to some of the backlash we've seen against Black Lives Matter. Steve? Yeah, I, I would agree with what Joe just said. It, it did set off a series of repressive actions that the capitalists and the state took against worker movements. Peter Ratcliffe mentioned the Homestead. Homestead was a perfect example of the ways in which the employer, in this case, the, the Carnegie Steel Corporation, brought in Pinkerton agents. And in effect, there was a pitch battle with strikers from the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers. This is just a half dozen years after Amar. Market. And it continues throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, supported by, of course, the, the, both the federal and state governments and the courts. And I think it's important for us to remember that the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, play a major role in these repressive actions because they ratify the kinds of actions that, that, that private employers take, but also the state and federal government takes. For example, two years after Homestead in the Pullman strike, the, the aforementioned Grover Cleveland calls in federal troops to carry the 
mail. And that's one of the ways in which they break the strike. So I'm teaching a course this semester at the School of Labor and Urban Studies with a labor lawyer. And it's a course called Labor Struggles and Labor Laws. And I've had to dig in deeply to particularly Supreme Court, but not only Supreme Court decisions related to labor struggles. And it is appalling from the mid, from the early 19th century all the way through to our own time. If we think we're in a unique right-wing turn of the court, you have no idea how awful it was in the 19th century around lots of issues, but especially around labor issues. I guess the one other thing I would say, and picking up again on what something Peter Ratcliffe said, it's really important to understand that the struggle in Chicago for the eight-hour day and then what ultimately happens with Haymarket grows out of an intense organization at a number of levels in working-class communities. And I think what's really important to remember is how important the immigrant communities were. Those days, they were Germans. They were you know, people who'd escaped from Germany after the, the failure of the 1848 revolution. They are Bohemians, not like Greenwich Village Bohemians, but Czechs who leave Eastern Europe. And these people come with radical ideas and radical philosophies. And that's part of why anarchism has such a strong resonance in this moment and socialism. And I guess I want to put in a shameless plug for my dead colleague, Jim Green's book, Death in the Haymarket, which is Adrian mentions is one of the three books. I happen to think it's the very best. And I really would encourage folks, if you're interested in, after you've seen the film, to learn you know, more about it, the Haymarket and the movement in Chicago, Jim's book, Death in the Haymarket, is really a great place to start. Thanks, Dave. That reminds me, Adrian, folks were asking, what are the three books? Obviously, we, we now know one of them. What were the other two, just so folks know? So, yeah, Jim Green's book is probably the most well-known. I spoke with Jim Green, I think, in 2015. At that time, he was fairly ill. And it's through him that I ran into Elaine Bernard, actually. And that's how we started working together. And she had this just radical idea that she said to me when we were there, which I just love the way she spoke, just so calmly but straightforward, when she said, you know, does anybody work an eight-hour day, day anymore? Because if you have <laughs> an eight-hour job and then you're working part-time, the eight-hour day has already died years ago because of people not being able to survive on eight hours, which is what was happening in, in 1886. And uh, I know that Paul Averich uh, wrote a book, a Chicago native as well. Jim Green, uh, also a Chicago uh, a person. And uh, Henry David, I believe, wrote a book as well in, in 1936, maybe. And I think those are the three texts that people usually refer to when they create cases. Of course, there's been many books by some of the people in the movie and, and others that that write on this topic. I think I find it always surprising to read some of the newspaper articles. And I think to really dig deep into this topic is to read some of those speeches and to really read some of these newspaper articles, even if they are sensationalized a little bit, even if they are dramatized because of some of the press wasn't exactly right on the spot there. And there were, you know, some of the things they were saying were not even true. But I think it's just very interesting to get into the granular aspect of the day-to-day -day newspaper writing at that time about these events, it really opens up a whole different world. And working on this film, I think to me, was just amazing at how much effort went in the media to, to write about this, whether on the right or the uh, left side of, of this event. And uh, I tried to show that in the movie a little bit. I tried to show some of these newspaper articles and some of them I put in there just because they sounded ridiculous. One you may not even notice, but there's one I put in there that you have to pause the movie 
and it talks about Lewis Ling, how they found him in a cell screaming with his arms raging with his face blown off. And if you pause the movie, you will read the entire description, which is very graphic. And for that reason, I didn't really make it larger because I just stuck an Easter egg in there. But to me, just to visually even see somebody go through that pain. And of course, there's a lot of conspiracy around that, whether that was murder or actual suicide. Mm. Uh, so I also put that Easter egg in there as well. Just getting back to Lucy Parsons, she is a little bit forgotten. And in the movie, I kind of plan that as you start only hearing about her towards the end of the film. And Larry mentions and goes, well, by the way, there's this person named Lucy Parsons that no one talks about. And I did that in the film a little bit on purpose so that when someone reads about Lucy Parsons can go, oh, okay. Again, some of these little things I try to put in the film to, to spice things up a little bit for people who know the topic. But I really try to also address the general viewer, the person that may not know about this film or this topic and see if I can generate some interest for them to dig a little deeper. Thanks, Adrian. And just a real quick, and folks, uh, we have an interview in the Labor Goats, the movie podcast, uh, goes really in depth with Adrian, who came over from Poland when he was 10, has been living in Chicago, which I was basically how he got tuned into all of this. But Adrian, if you just share with folks, this, obviously nobody makes documentaries for the big bucks and the, the red carpet. Share folks with folks what you do for your commercial work. He's done Super Bowl commercials and... I think my whole... Um professional work has been, it started in journalism and then went into advertising. And I guess if I was to define my day-to-day job, it would be, someone told me once when I got hired, they said, Adrian, your job isn't really to judge, it's to generate demand. And that's what you're supposed to do with your images. Don't tell me a story, make me want something. And from that, I think I needed an escape in some ways to be able to take a breath. And I went down a rabbit hole one day about the idea of neighborhoods. And that drew me into uh, labor, which of course, uh, being Polish and the whole solidarity movement in the 1980s, of course, exampled after the civil rights movement in America, the word solidarity itself is a very powerful word in the Polish language because of that. And it's still a very union-friendly country, even today, despite some of the battles that are having. But generally, I guess the commercial work I do, and a lot of it in, in advertising and sports car racing, I really have felt that history and just the idea of labor and people in these stories are just fascinating to me. I'm just fascinated by it. So even though the funding for this was very limited, and a lot of it was honestly just people working on their own time and, and coming in and doing these interviews, and not everybody exactly wants to pick up the phone and call you back when you're making an anarchist film. <laughs> really? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, it's not the easiest topic to sell to somebody to, to participate. And I really didn't know where this film was going, to be honest with everybody. I just said, I'm just going to take this story and take these people and we're just going to see where this goes. And then once I got enough material, I said, I have no idea how I'm going to put this together. And then I, I honestly spent, I edited this film on airplanes. I was flying from job to job and I would sit on airplanes and sit in hotels and I would just have a beer or two and just cut away through it. And just uh, four years later, this is what came out. So I'm really glad that I was able to pin it up last year because of uh, COVID actually, in some ways, helped me out a lot in ways to have some time to, to put it. But just seeing everybody say such things about the film makes me really happy. And I've done a few films for PBS and a lot of the films that are on there are because people like you watch and, and, and call an email and say, hey, look, things like that should be on TV and labor should be talked about. And just like the film talks about hundreds of people trying to make change, it, it takes all of us to, to push that topic. And we may not all agree on that whole subject, but if no one talks about it, then no one gets anywhere. And that's just 
my humble opinion. Part of the reasons I wanted you to share that is because one of the, the things I think it's really important is that you do know how to tell a story. And I think you do know how to get people to want something. And that's one of the things I think makes the film so great. Uh, quick question from Patricia that she wanted to know what neighborhood in Chicago you grew up in. I grew up in a few. I started out in the Avondale uh, neighborhood in Central Park and Diversity. I lived on the northwest side of the city at some point. I lived in the West Loop and I lived in Rogers Park where I went to Loyola, and that was probably one of the most diverse neighborhoods in America. It's a very, it's very New Yorkish type of neighborhood where you have people from all over the world. And I also lived in the suburbs and currently just live on the touching suburbs of, of Chicago. But I think to be in Chicago is to live in many people here move throughout all different neighborhoods. And it's interesting because in some ways, moving through very diverse neighborhoods, I think you can find yourself in four blocks to be surrounded by people from a completely different world that don't speak your language. And then four blocks later, there's this whole different concept that you've never been introduced to before. So it's, uh, I guess, like many towns around America, even Dallas and a lot of these places today are very diverse. And I don't know, to me, it's a great thing to have. There's another question about whether a link of the recording will be shared. I will be issuing this as an edition of the Labor Goes to the Movie podcast, and I will put a link to that out shortly. I want to, there's a, a, actually a question I want to come back to, but I want to call on another colleague of mine, Kurt Stand. Another, that everybody wears so many damn hats, um, including me, no, no fault there, but the, Kurt's one of my co-conspirators on the monthly version of the BC Labor Film Festival until the pandemic last year, which was a monthly series at Busboys and Poets. And so he's another person who helps me to find films. And actually one of the films he's been pushing for years is in the Film Fest this year, which makes Kurt very happy. But he's also a very active member of DSA and I'm sure has some comments to make. So go ahead, Kurt. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Yes, and uh, with the films too. But a couple of things I do want to say. One, I grew up in a family where these were all names. Not only August Spies, but Friedrich Sorge, Joseph Wiedemeyer, the whole German left tradition. And one of the interesting things about Haymarket, and that's why I thought Peter Ratchliff's point was so important, is yes, the movement was suppressed. Uh, Friends of Milwaukee were today in Bayview the year after seven people were killed in an eight hour a day thing, but they didn't disappear. They were continuing to work with their ideas, which is why this didn't go away. And in the nights in the IWW, even within the AFL, within the miners unions, these within immigrant communities, the Haymarket resonated really until the 30s or World War I, where there was a whole new generation of martyrs. But one point I wanted to make, because I thought it was very good in the film and so relevant today, is that you begin with the process by which industrialization was destroying crafts. And really the basis of the radicalism of August Spies, Lewis Ling, and so on, is that their way of life was being destroyed. They were young men, uh, young people growing up, and there is no place for them in the world because the crafts and the industries, that's why so many of them flitted from job to job. They were being suppressed and this society wasn't giving them a way out. And you wanna look at today from Occupy on to Black Lives Matter, that's what people are saying, is the society does, isn't giving us a future, right? There is no future in this society and therefore we're taking to the streets and then they're being met with this tremendous repression. And to me, that was the most powerful kind of real linkage between the then and now 
and there's so much to learn. And just the final thing, what they did was truly heroic because by not caving in, they gave it deep meaning. And to give one last example of who was there, Jose Marti initially was, he was in Chicago and just reading the press was wholly unsympathetic to the anarchists and the socialists. He thought that they were rioters. And then he heard their speeches and he attended the, some of the latter points and wrote this very powerful moving articles in Chicago about how important and their legacy and what they meant to him. So they were able to move people and that's what we continue to try to do. So, and as this movie helps us to do. Thank you for that. Thank you, Kerr. And that actually brings me back to something that I want to put to both Joe and Steve. I want to talk about Amazon. Right. And, and because to me, from what you are talking about, and, and I just kept thinking about it in the film, because as a number of you have talked about, it does not seem when you talk about big capitalists, you could take some of those same cartoons from those days and just put some of our plutocrats from the infotech industries on there. I think it would work perfectly. And it just feels a lot, you know, some people have all the money and the rest of us are running around warehouses for a few dollars an hour. Joe, let me throw that to you and then uh, go to Steve. And actually, <laughs> that's a great point, Chris. And the, the growth of inequality, it was exploding in, in the time of Haymarket, as you had the first big corporations, railroads, and just emerging in the uh, 1880s steel companies, um, and both Peter and Steve referred to the great steel strike that would happen several years later. You start to have the emergence of these huge fortunes, unprecedented fortunes, unprecedented power of corporations like railroads and like McCormick's in, in Chicago, where the shooting happened that really led to Haymarket. And the resistance by McCormick to the eight-hour demand is, I think, it's reminiscent of the way in which Amazon has used all of its power today to try to resist unionism. Not in the same way that was done in Chicago in 1886. There's not violence used in that way, but using every legal trick in the book to try to undermine work organization, hiring a thousand new people just on the eve of the, the, the bargaining unit being certified in Bessemer, for example, to just make it almost impossible in the midst of a pandemic for the union to reach the workers it was trying to reach. And having so much power and influence, being able to, as I'm sure you all followed it, one of the places the union was recruiting was a stoplight where workers left the Amazon plant and having the power to just go to local authorities and say, change the timing of that light and get the timing changed. So I think it's a really good point, Chris, to think about the power of an Amazon today, and especially in, in uh, the shadow of this pandemic from which we're trying to emerge and how much power and wealth that company has gained just in the past year. And that makes 1886 very much more resonant, I think, in, in these days. Thanks, Joe. Steve? I think Joe covers the connection very well. I, I, I would say that maybe to, to take a slightly contrarian view, as much as I loathe and detest Jeff Bezos for who he is and what he is and what he's done with his gazillions of dollars in wealth, when you compare him to some of the 
plutocrats from the past, we've faced worse. I think of the 1937 Republic Steel strike when the when Republic Steel, Little Steel, not U.S. Steel, basically armed the Chicago police. We're back to Chicago again. And what did they do with the arms, the machine guns? They gunned workers down in the back who were peacefully demonstrating for a union contract. And it's not to make Jeff Bezos seem more mild-mannered, but it's to say that the labor movement has always, always, from the outset, from the earliest years of the 19th century, had to face the forces of repression. So while I'm disappointed at what happened in Bessemer, I'm not entirely surprised for all the reasons that Joe said. With that kind of power, it's very hard for a labor union to follow a kind of traditional collective bargaining struggle and structure. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned from the anarchists and the IWW that, that sometimes extra legal organization might be a better way to go than to put it your, yourself through the collective bargaining process of the National Labor Relations Act, given all the ways in which the NLRA, as progressive as it was in 1935, was completely hemmed in 12 years later with the passage of Taft-Hartley and 12 years after that with the passage of the Landrum-Griffin Act. So the labor movement needs to rethink its approach to organization. And it seems to me Bessemer might be an object lesson in, in that very process that we need to engage in. Thanks, Steve. Steve. Thanks, Steve. Can uh, I comment on go that? Go ahead. Go, yeah, please, Adrian. You know, it's one of the very interesting you said that. When I started the film, for who's watched it, I spent a little bit of time, and this is to you, Kurt, about defining the end of craftsmanship, because I really wanted the viewer to start understanding who is a worker, because I think many people in today, this is just me and my humble opinion from experience, just reading about unionization and some of the numbers, is I started feeling that some people don't think they're workers when they're actually workers. There's this deniability of, oh, I'm not a worker. I work for myself, but but I work for a bank, or I'm using Amazon as a medium partner, or also Technically, just because you're a small businessman or a craftsman doesn't necessarily mean you're not a worker. And I think a different approach to unionization is something like every other corporation does where they reorganize and rebrand. And I hate to use these words, but I've quoted them before, where there's a lot of people out there that may not even know that they're workers. And I tried to spend a little time on that in the film in the beginning to, to tell people that anarchism wasn't just some crazy idea, that it came out of a work-related idea because in the 20th century, anarchy became chaos and violence. And we're thinking of punk music and people burning down buildings for, for pure joy of violence versus just people just trying to survive and work. So that's one of the things that I just wanted to comment on there. Because I know, Kurt, you mentioned something about that idea of craftsmanship and still great crafts out here today. And every time I see a TV commercial, I've worked on one, even though it's completely commercial and capitalist, they'll still use the craftsman as a pawn in relating to the idea that being a rugged individual in America is the way to go. But of course, you can't operate on your own heart, right? So you always need somebody. Thanks, Adrian. I'm glad you raised that. Abby, you've had your hand up, and I'm sorry I missed that. You're up next. Hello. Um, this is Christine Sylvia DeGenero. This is my daughter, Abby. Hey, guys. Um, Hey, one thing. So we really enjoyed this film. We watched it this afternoon. I cried. Yeah, watch it together. Abby's obvious, she's daughter of a trade union activist and so very in touch with things, but also, you know, does her own research and is really engaged in 
political conversations with her friends. And so as we were watching this film together, we just started talking about how there were so many parallels to the to today. And it feels like this film would be a great film to have shared with high school history teachers who could use this because it, it doesn't it provide, I think it was, Kurt was saying, just like this great overview in the beginning about what was happening with labor, why we had workers coming from the, the farms to the factories, who these workers were, and it provides this lovely overview and then gives this great analysis of what happened there. And so it feels like this would be a really great film to share with high school history uh, teachers because it feels like it would be a great opportunity to for students to be able to connect to what's happened in the past and this movement for the eight-hour workday, which ultimately we did end up with the Fair Labor Standards Act and we get, did get overtime pay for more than 40 hours a week. And so to give students the opportunity to be able to reflect on what's happened in the past and then you know, compare it to what we're dealing with today. And, and one thought that I had around it was the gig economy and how we've got workers moving from gig to gig no longer considered employees. And so the kind of just work environment that they're in, yes, we don't have people firing guns at people demanding rights, but we do have situations where workers are really struggling to make ends meet at the same time. We have massive inequality. Especially and millennials. Yes, millennials are really struggling to be able to make ends meet. So Abby, did you have anything you wanted to share? Um, I really appreciated the movie. And I thought it was a very good uh, mode to tell like stories like that. And I haven't seen like a movie, if you could present that in a classroom since seventh grade when we learned about Andrew Carnegie and like that, the, the, when they killed all the people in like the homestead strike. And I, we learned about Arthur Frick. I think was that was his name. I think that was his name. I just remember he had a weird last name. And we learned that about that. I'm in it, but I think we should, it wasn't, I feel like there wasn't as much discussion. I feel like classrooms will really benefit from this movie. Thank, Thank you so much. You. Thank you both very much. That's a great way to go out. And so before we wrap, Adrian, back to you. So what's next for Haymarket? First, I'd just like to, to again, thank everybody for watching it. We could go on here for forever. And just to get some of your feedback and Steve and, and Joe and uh, Kurt and Peter and everybody who's commenting, just thank you guys for uh, for sharing your thoughts. And you guys have a lot of experience in this as well. And just, it's great to, to hear some of your feedback. I respect that very much. The next thing for Haymarket, it's going through some festivals and we're trying to get it out to PBS to try to get it out to people. It's going to eventually make its way, hopefully through some networks such as it's going to have to be Amazon or Netflix because they pretty much monopolize <laughs> TV. And have exploited it just like Walmart has exploited America in some ways. How do you reach people? You, know, you have to have a medium in some ways. A lot of it also depends on people like you who watch it, who are able to say, hey, look, let's show this somewhere. Let's talk to people about it. This movie wasn't so much a money-making venture as just uh, the love of this story and, and the fact of sharing this experience. Write us, make suggestions. If you like, you can always pick up a copy of the film on our website, which will be shortly available. You can pick up a digital copy and hopefully it's going to be doing some festivals for the next couple of months. And we're trying to do more screenings as the pandemic eases. Um, currently working with WTTW PBS here in Chicago, try to get it on. And not everybody always wants to put on a film that talks about the subjects that are a little touchy. We, I find that patriotism really is also being able to criticize and try to make things better. We can't just appease everyone. And, and this film 
I feel does a pretty good job of, of being impartial to it and, and historic, but in some ways it will have its own challenges. I hope that it can touch more viewers like yourselves. And I'm just really glad that you guys have taken the time out of your busy life to, to watch it because in the end, uh, if it doesn't have a viewer, then, you know, it doesn't really get its justice. I would just like to thank you all for really for your kindness and for watching it. And I did want to address one question. A couple of people did ask about Timothy Crusay and some of his works. And I just wanted to say that uh, Timothy Crusay is a little bit of a controversial person in, in that history. And I, and he did come on the film because I felt that his view was it certainly gave it more depth because he his view is a little bit different than everybody else's. And he did have a more of a, a different approach at looking through a different lens at this subject. But of course, my job, I think, in this film, again, was to really facilitate these people and, and have them talk about it. And I would just love to have more discussions with everybody. So if you write me some emails, you will get a response, even if it takes a little bit, because I just love this topic and I know everybody is passionate about it. So just thank you, everyone. And thank you for watching. Thank you, Adrian. I, I, I got to say, I, I love the idea of Haymarket on Amazon. I'm sorry. I, I just, I think there is some sort of wonderful justice in that somehow that maybe that's just me. Before we officially wrap up, though, I have to go to my good friend and colleague, Andrew Tilson. First of all, Andrew worked with Adrian. Andrew has an Eventive platform. And those of you that watch the film on Eventive, and I just figured out how to do that on my TV. So well done, guys. But Andrew runs the Workers United Film Festival out of New York City as part of the Global Labor Film Fest Network. And we've known each other for a long time. And DC just launched our web, our uh, film festival this week. And Andrew, your film festival is coming up and you're also online. So I believe people can watch your films wherever they are as well. Absolutely. So thanks for pulling this together, Chris. And I just want to give credit where it's due as Melanie Lindauer, who was our head of yes. during submissions yes. and promotion and our can't do it without her. Melanie, who is watching. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Melanie. Pulls, pulls all the back end together. So it's seamless, which is great. Just like you watch the film tonight for free, starting May 7th to the 12th, there will be 20, I believe 28 or 30 films for free over those five days, um, including nine to five, which you've shown a bunch of films, company town, which is devastating. I don't know if you've seen it or shown mm -hmm, it yet. Mm -hmm. And I would add that we're going to show Adrian's film together, hopefully with Stephen's film on the strike of 1877 in October as part of a big event in October. But for May, all free, uneventive, same links, and uh, sign up for email. And thanks to Chris for pulling this all together, too. All right. Listen, a big thanks to everybody for showing up tonight. It's a Saturday night. I got to admit, I was a little nervous about trying to get people uh, together on a Saturday night, uh, even though it is May Day, International Workers uh, Day, but you all showed up. Thank you for that. I think it's a good way to finish out International Workers Day. Special, special thanks to Adrian for making such a fabulous film, to both Steve and to Joe for really giving us some context. To my dad, who I worked in Rochester with the film festival there, then brought down here to DC. And now there are dozens of labor film festivals all over the world. And so may that uh, continue. To everybody, thank you so much. We will see you at the movies, lots more online. We will follow up and get uh, all of these links out to you. Everybody continue to be safe, and we'll see you at the Labor Movies. Take care. Good night. That's it for today's special edition of Labor Goes to the Movies. Hope to see you at one of our weekly open sessions this month, Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can RSVP at the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. 
See you at the labor movies.